Our fickle friend, the summer wind, has come and gone, and it has taken the steam out of technology stocks with it. Volatilities come roaring back after a long summer break, and it looks like it wants to stick around for a while. What the options market is telling us about the future, and the U.S. dollar keeps going lower while the euro keeps rising. We'll explain the divergence in global currencies. You are on the Investopedia Express, and I'm your host, Caleb Silver. Welcome to the podcast, friends. You're on the launch pad with us for our debut into the big, bold world of audio journalism. The Express sets you up with what we think are the most important stories facing individual investors this week and how to think about those stories as an educated investor. We look at the what, the why, and what's next in the stories, trends, and developments that are moving markets to help you get a better understanding of what's really going on. We'll talk to some smart people, we'll learn some new things, and we will get ready for the week together on the Investopedia Express. Thanks for joining us. Today on the podcast, some notable news, three trends we're watching, and a few good minutes with business journalist and cable news anchor Ali Velshi of MSNBC. Plus terminology, what word will you need to know this week just to make you a little bit smarter? Let's do some headlines for Tuesday morning, September the 8th. The S&P 500 index has some new players at the table, and Tesla is not one of them. Late last Friday, test equipment maker Teradyne, pharmaceutical company Catalent, and e-commerce site Etsy were welcomed into the index by the S&P 500 index committee, but not Tesla, which many thought was a guarantee. The company recently split its shares 5 to 1 last month. It issued $5 billion in new shares effective this morning. It's basically flooding the market with supply just as demand appears to have disappeared. The stock's fallen 15% from its recent highs. That's a correction, but it's up nearly 400% in 2020. So perspective is everything when it comes to Tesla. The recent run-up in Tesla's stock post-split, which is kind of unusual, may have driven a lot of index fund investors and people who follow Tesla to assume it was a shoe-in to be included in the benchmark index, and that may have forced it to hold the stock as well. But that's not happening this year, and the stock is selling off. General Motors announced this morning it is taking a 10% stake in electric truck maker Nikola. Nikola, also named after Nikola Tesla but not connected to Elon Musk Tesla, has been one of the hot unicorn stocks of 2020. It's introduced the Badger pickup truck, but it has yet to sell one vehicle. Shares are up 30% Tuesday morning on news of the GM investment. And nine U.S. and European drug makers working on coronavirus vaccines pledge to uphold the scientific standards that their experimental immunizations will be held against. This comes as global governments are trying to speed up the deployment of vaccines before they might be ready for safe public use. In a joint statement, drug makers including Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and GlaxoSmithKline, among others, issued, quote, a historic pledge to uphold the integrity of the scientific process as we work towards potential global regulatory filings and approvals of the first COVID-19 vaccines. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control recently told states to prepare for a November 1st deployment of the vaccine or vaccines. The problem is we don't have a proven one yet. It's time for Trend Watching, where we identify a few trends to focus on this week to help give you some perspective on the economy and the markets. Joining me for some Trend Watching is Investopedia's very own James Chen, our head of investing and trading education, who also happens to be a chartered market technician. He knows charts and he knows trends. James, welcome to The Express. Thanks so much, Caleb. Great to be here. Let's talk about volatility. Okay, first of all, 
Volatility was on a big summer vacation. It's back now. It's making all kinds of noise in the technology sector. Now, volatility is measured by the VIX, which is also known as the Volatility Index, also known as the Fear Index. This measures the amount of expected volatility in the next 30 days. Right, James? Yes, absolutely. And uh, for the past uh, several days, we've seen a big spike in the VIX where it's been coming down for the past several weeks and months. So volatility is back. So if we see like a widespread in the options markets, looking out to the next month, that means that there's a lot of bets, right? Either direction that the market's going to rise or fall. That means the VIX rises, which is usually a sign for rocky roads for the markets, right? That's absolutely correct. And what we're seeing uh, most of the time when you see this elevated pricing in the options market, you're looking at people buying puts. And that's really a reflection of the fear that's going on in the markets. And for now, you know, we just hit all-time highs in new all-time highs in the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. And now we're seeing uh, some profit taking, but uh, also uh, elevation in fear. So puts are bets that the market will fall, right? Those are put options versus call options, which are bets that the markets will rise. So puts means lots of bets to the downside. Not just bets to the downside, but also people, investors trying to protect their positions in the markets by buying puts. So those are a lot of those are protective puts. That's where the fear comes in. Got you. So people hedging, they may have had seen some very big gains in their portfolio and are buying puts potentially in case the markets fall. So they have a little hedge bet going. Absolutely. That's usually the way it works. Okay. So as we get a little bit closer to the election, which is coming up on the calendar very fast, lots going on in the global economy right now, obviously with the pandemic, the elections coming up, we have Brexit issues, basically a hundred different issues that are causing some fear in the markets. Should we expect more volatility or less looking out the next couple of months? I would think so. I've been looking at the markets for the past several months since the big March drop. And you know, really, we've seen a lot of upside momentum, really, really sharp moves. Uh, and some would say those moves are, are not really warranted. So at this point, it's been due for quite some time uh, that we have, uh, you know, another uh, spike in volatility, another drop in the market. I think for now, though, I mean, it, it looks like it's just a profit taking move, but it could be uh, significantly more than that. Great. Let's move on to our next trend, which is related, right? Tech stocks may have flown too close to the sun. Valuations have gotten extremely high. It's very hot. Several of them have fallen into a correction last week, which is funny because they're all up 200, 300% and they fell 10% or more just in the last week. But after rising 70% off of its lows in March, as you mentioned, the NASDAQ fell about 6% between last week and, and this week. Technical analysis, like you, James, look for things called support and resistance when markets go to extremes. What are those and what are we looking at right now? Well, support and resistance are basically lines in the sand in the market. So when you look at any chart of any market, whether it be the NASDAQ or an individual stock or what have you, we're essentially looking for levels, price levels, where price may turn. So for example, if you have a big drop like we're, we're sort of seeing right now, in the NASDAQ and in the S&P 500, then technical analysts will be looking for sort of, uh, you know, the price levels, lines where there might be a turn, where there might be demand in, the, in terms of support. Resistance, uh, you can think of resistance sort of like a ceiling and support being a floor. Now, these are not completely infallible. Of course, uh, you have floors that break down and then you have floors underneath that. But generally speaking, these are guidelines for technical analysts and traders to use. Right. So the NASDAQ, which had been on an absolute tear, right? It crossed 12,000, I think, sometime last week, 
probably hit that resistance level, probably blew right through it a couple of times. But on the way back down here, right, down, looking down around 3% on a Tuesday as we're taping this, what does a support level look for a NASDAQ? What I see here on the uh, NASDAQ, we have a support level around 10,800 on the NASDAQ composite. Now, uh, that could very well have been blown through to the downside. So uh, we do have uh, support levels further to the downside that we're looking at that price may uh, reach. And, you know, let me make this clear. If, if price does come de- back down all the way to these support levels, uh, we're looking at a pretty significant drop or dip or correction or retracement or, or really whatever you want to call it. But the next one lower below the 10,800 level I would say is around the 10,200 level for the NASDAQ. These are pretty significant drops, but as we mentioned, NASDAQ has been on an absolute tear since those lows in late March. And a lot of new investors, James, have come into this market. They've never seen this type of volatility or even this type of a correction. They may have no idea that stock markets and stocks fall 10%, 20% or more sometimes. Exactly. And, and, you know, we've seen throughout this recovery from the March lows that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of new participation from uh, retail traders. And yeah, you're right. I mean, to have this kind of a drop occur right after you start trading can be unnerving. But I think overall, we still are in what we call an uptrend. Right. The trend is your friend, as they say in our business. And what I love about technical analysis, it takes the emotions out of it. It takes the stories out of it. It's all about price. And market technicians like yourself, you just look at the price and forget everything else. And when you do that, you see things a little bit differently. Last trend we're watching this week, the dollar's been on a steady decline, uh, just the way a lot of politicians like it. Meanwhile, the euro has been rising pretty aggressively, very different uh, behaviors by two of the major currencies as we come through this recovery. What does the dollar decline tell you about where we're headed and where might it go from here, not in price level, but in terms of further downside? Or is it going to strengthen? And the euro strengthening as that uh, economy tries to recover, James? You know, when you look at the, the two biggest currencies, or the two most traded currencies, the US dollar and the euro, they're going to be at odds. So if, for example, uh, you know, when you, trade, uh, when you trade the Forex market, you trade currencies in pairs. So for example, the euro dollar, the euro against the US dollar is the most traded, most liquid currency pair there is. So Generally speaking, when you see the dollar go down, you see the euro go up and vice versa. Now, uh, when you take a look at what's been happening with the dollar, uh, you could take a look at the dollar index. Uh, we've seen a big drop, you know, a big and sustained drop pretty much since the height of the pandemic in March. Now, uh, there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of which is we have a lot of accommodation, what we call an accommodative stance from Fed. So we're looking at uh, lower rates, lower rates for longer, et cetera. And then so from the ECB or the European Central Bank, we don't see nearly as much of that. So uh, that's one of the reasons that the dollar has been dropping pretty steadily. We've seen a pop uh, most recently, but generally speaking, I would say that the dollar has further downside to go. And if, if that occurs, then we're going to see uh, more upside for gold, for silver, for the uh, commodities, and perhaps even for equities. Right, because that lowers costs, right, for those exporters out of the U.S., which is good for their bottom lines, and their bottom lines in large part have been suffering. James Chen, Investopedia's Director of Trading and Investing Education. Thanks for joining The Express. Always good to have your perspective, my friend. You too. Thanks so much, Caleb. 
Every week, we'll be spending a few good minutes with a special guest from the world of business, investing, economics, or related industries to share what's on their mind about the most important issues around you and your money. I'm delighted to launch these conversations with my good friend, Ali Velshi. He's the anchor of his own weekend news program on MSNBC. He's the former top business correspondent at CNN, where we worked together for several years. He's a philanthropist, an educator, and an all-around solid citizen of the planet. Let's get into it with a few good minutes with Ali Velshi. So, Ali, you and I worked together through the last financial crisis. We saw how income inequality really blew up. It was already headed down that path. We're right in the middle of this crisis. We see a lot of similarities this time and some notable differences. But what's surprising you about the recovery, about where we are right now, and also what's not surprising you, which is just seems like the same old coming back to haunt us? The thing that surprises me, and by the way, it surprised me last time around in a different way, and that last time was all about a credit freeze, right? We had never seen such a thing where it wasn't just regular people who couldn't get loans. It was companies. Governments wouldn't lend to each other. So we were all about unfreezing this credit so that the world could carry on. What what we realized in the last recession was that credit is the oil that lubricates the engine of the economy. What we weren't paying attention to in the moment then was the degree to which the actions that we can take exacerbate the inequality, right? We just needed to save everybody. We needed to get credit going. We needed to, to save the world. Now I think we are substantially clearer on how when we do certain things like the Fed does what it's doing in guaranteeing that banks have all the money necessary to be able to continue to loan people, uh, loan companies money so that there's no credit freeze. Well, that then sets apart companies and people with great credit and access to credit from those who don't have jobs, who might be losing their homes, who've been laid off. So we're watching the inequality grow in front of us, and it's much more mainstream. We all understand that better than we did before. So that's the part that I think we've learned, and that's different from last time. What surprises me is the degree to which we've still got the same tropes. We've still got the same thing about there's going to be too much debt, so we've got to stop with the relief programs. We don't seem to have problems with something that looks like an an endless money tree when it comes to putting money into the credit system, which is great, right? We should actually be saying to the banks, keep loaning companies money as long as they're credit worthy. We'll make sure as the Fed and the government that you've got enough money. That's actually a really good policy. And in that, you don't have to go to the government. You don't have to go through a political process. But when it comes to regular people, it still becomes this idea that government money is free money that people are going to exploit. We haven't quite registered that when people don't have an income and you give them a dollar of government assistance, the return is great than that dollar because people without an income or with a low income spend all of that money and they spend it all hyper locally, which means jobs are created in the environment. So we haven't haven't switched our way of thinking about how we're supposed to deal with these things. I think we're a little bit better off than we were last time in understanding the degree to which inequality is being exacerbated by these policies, but we haven't quite figured out what to do about it. Right. The relief seems to be going to the capital markets, to the financial institutions to keep the systems going. We saw that in 2009, 2010. Worked out great for stock investors. Didn't work out great for people trapped in a minimum wage job or working less than full time. So it seems like the, the, the money, the stimulus is not really hitting the right people who really need it the most, which is that lower income group that is frontline workers, right? We've talked about this on your program. These are the people that are actually the ones who are being held down while the capital markets and the haves and those with good credit and cash make off. Right. So if you have good credit right now, even if you're not an absolute have, 
you can refinance your mortgage for under 3% for a 30-year mortgage. So you actually come out of this thing, if you didn't lose your job and you have good credit, better off than you did, right? That's, gonna, that's how it was in the last recession. That's how it is now. But the one thing we are realizing about these minimum wage frontline workers or low-income people is the degree to which they are crucial to our society. They were invisible people. Now, thankfully, they're not. Listen, you're a card-carrying capitalist. You say it all the time. You're not afraid to talk about it. But the kind of capitalism that you're talking about, and imagine when I hear you and read, read what you write, is not the capitalism that we're living in right now. You have a vision for, for a more conscious form of capitalism, for lack of a better word. What would it feel like if it was done right and actually helping people and not creating this separation that is so rampant? The problem, I think, with capitalism right now is distribution, right? It's like plumbing. The plumbing's working, but if it's not getting to all the taps, it's just not working. And that's what our, our system has. I don't have an issue with wealth creation and the way it's created and the incentives behind wealth creation, but for some reason, it doesn't spread itself out well. And people call that redistribution, except when we build roads and when we have hospitals and we have traffic lights, these are, these are shared costs. Well, why don't we extend that to education? Why don't we extend that to healthcare? It's just a way of distributing your wealth in a, in a, in a method that gives you a better return on your investment. That's the whole point, is that if we are getting more out to more people, they will then invest it. And in fact, we'll do better. In theory, debt will be lower. More people will be participants. More people will be taxpayers. People have a very black and white view of these things. It's either capitalism or socialism. It's either you're incentivizing people or you're paying them to stay home. It's just not like that. We have a system that fundamentally is probably better than most other systems in the world. It's also fundamentally flawed. And we get to see those flaws. We can fix that. And it is in the hands of capitalists, people who believe in the system and people who benefit from it to say, this is not fair. It's not a bad system, but it definitely is not working fairly. We have to fix it so that it is fair, it is equitable, and the spoils of our our capitalist system are distributed more fairly and more more evenly. You hear it a little bit with the the business roundtable and the BlackRocks, these $7 trillion asset firms and the biggest companies in the world saying we have to get to a a stakeholder capitalism, for lack of a better word. Just adding an extra stakeholder. We know shareholders are there. We know customers are there. A lot of companies now treat their employees as key stakeholders and those become the best companies to work at. We have to think about the earth and the climate, and we have to think about society. So just add a few more stakeholders. It does, it's not going to make it worse. It's the German system of companies and employment, right? They've got a few more people at the table, so their decisions tend to be more sound. That's all I'm saying. Add a few more people to the table, come up with better decisions. I bet you the pot's not going to shrink. It's going to grow. All right. Since we are Investopedia, we were built with financial terms and concepts and definitions. What's yours, Ali Vail? So your very favorite financial term or concept that you just like, that just makes sense to me. Uh, inverted yield curve. Because I love it. I just I love saying it. I say it a lot. It is conceptually something that's really interesting if you can explain it to people, which, by the way, is hard to do. And I often go to Investopedia to do it. It makes people understand a concept about, wow, the way people think about risk and the cost of money over time. My friend, worldwide journalist, author, humanitarian, professor, all around good guy, Ali Vashley. Thanks for joining us on The Express. It is a delight to have had you here. I'm going to see you on my show soon. It's terminology time, the part of the show where we introduce and explain a key financial investing term that may be important in the week ahead. This week's term, the put-to-call ratio. The put-to-call ratio is an indicator ratio that provides information about relative trading volumes of an underlying security's put options to its call options. Remember, put options are bets that a security will fall in the future. Call options are bets that the security will rise. 
The put-to-call ratio has long been viewed as an indicator of investor sentiment in the markets, where a large proportion of puts-to-calls indicates bearish sentiment and vice versa. Technical traders use the put-to-call ratio as an indicator of performance and a barometer of overall market sentiment. Now, for some perspective, the put-to-call ratio was nearing multi-year lows at the end of August as the stock market made record highs day after day. That's a contrarian sign that the markets and investors are too optimistic, and it proved true once again. Volatility spiked as more puts or bearish bets on the market were made last week, sending U.S. markets to their first weekly loss in five. Keep an eye on the put-to-call ratio this week, and stay safe out there. Hey, thanks for joining us for the launch of the Investopedia Express. We'll be with you at the beginning of every week to help you get ready for what's ahead. I'm your host, Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. And as Warren Buffett likes to say, invest like a champion out there.